1: Welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, and everyone here at Radio Maria Canada, thank you for joining us. Please keep up to date and informed about our show, other tidbits that we like to throw on social media as well by following us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We are at the Health Hub RMC on those spots, and feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. We would love for you to to subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub and iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca and on my website, which is kathybsa.com. We have a great interview uh, that I taped earlier on. And this is about a new documentary on CBC Gem called Inside the Great Vaccine Race. And this documentary educated me, it moved me, and it truly brought to life an inside look in perhaps what is the greatest vaccine race of our time. Dougal Moudsley is an award-winning documentary filmmaker. He is also creative director of Infield Fly Productions, a Toronto-based independent that creates blue-chip science and natural history documentaries for broadcasters around the world. At Infield Fly Productions, Dugald helped create the popular series Myth or Science for the Nature of Things with David Suzuki on CBC Television. It has been broadcast in more than 50 countries. Infield Fly Productions has also worked with renowned broadcaster Sir David Attenborough to produce the award-winning documentary Jumbo, The Life of an Elephant Superstar for CBC TV and the BBC Television. Dugald has created and produced highly acclaimed series, feature documentaries, and one-off documentaries. He's currently working on films about the pandemic, climate change, and a three-part series for Netflix, Sky TV, and the CBC on the unique way animals use sound to survive. Over a 30-year career, Dugald has been on air an on-air national reporter and produced documentaries from many of the world's war zones. His interests in real-life personal stories come from a career of traveling the globe to make films on subjects as varied as the HIV crisis in Africa, the War on heroin in Pakistan, and Saddam Hussein's oppression of the Kurds. He began working in television journalists. Uh, he began working as a television journalist in New Zealand before joining the Australia ABC. Here he won the country's highest journalism award for a series on the Russian coup before becoming the executive producer of a primetime documentary series called Foreign Correspondent. In this role, Dugald oversaw the production of more than one hundred and twenty hours of programming that garnered dozens of international awards. In 2006, Dugald created the Gemini nominated genealogy series Ancestors in the Attic for History Television. During four successful seasons, he produced 49 documentaries shot around the world from Canada's High Arctic to West Africa, China, and Belarus. Dugald also helped produce a four-part series on wildlife trafficking for Nat Geo Wild in the United States and another documentary on human trafficking for Explorer on the National Geographic Channel. Infield Fly Productions has been honored with numerous awards, including three prestigious Canadian Screen Awards, the Documentary POV Award at the 2021 Yorkton. Film Festival, and a Jackson Hole Science Media Award. It is my great, great honor to have Dugald on our show today. We talk about so many things, the wonderful documentary that he's put together for us that is now on CBC Gem called Inside the Great Vaccine Race. We talk about a lot of things. Uh, Some of the highlights for me were the unprecedented level of collaboration between the scientists involved. The sacrifices made by scientists who are involved in this research as well, and also RNA technology as a game changer in the field of medicine. As I said, it's just my complete honor to have him on the show. I, I know that you are going to really enjoy this interview with him. We will be back in a few minutes.
2: Oh, right now, I just can't. It's easy to sing when there's nothing to bring me down. But what will I say when I'm held to the flame like I am right now? They say it only takes a little faith to move a mountain. Well, good thing a little faith is all I had right now. No
0: listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi.
1: Welcome back, everybody. As mentioned, today's show is being recorded or has been recorded, so no opportunity for calling in. Please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC on all of those locations. Dugald, welcome to the show. Thanks, Kathy. It's such a pleasure. Uh, I'm so uh, I'm so honored to have an affiliation with CBC and uh, and you and the work that you do. Your list of projects um, are so relevant. Uh, how did you How did you get into this line of work? What moves you to create these projects?
3: Well, I guess if I look back over, you know, these questions are easier to answer in hindsight, I think. And mm-hmm. uh, if I look back over sort of 25 to 30 years I've been doing this for, oh my gosh, that sounds like a long time. Um, I have to say that it's really about telling stories. Um, that, that's really the heart of it. And it's such a gas and a pleasure um, and an exciting thing to tell stories. And then I guess the other part of it for for us, at did fly, is telling stories that actually have some, some value to people. Um, you know, we've, we've, we've focused on um, ancestry because that changes people's lives. We focused on sport because it's such a dramatic world and science because, it, you know, science can really change our lives in an everyday way. So for us, it's always been, what's the great story that we can tell? And then let's tell a story that's going to have some value to the people who watch it.
1: It must be a profound learning experience for you in each of these projects? Are you studied beforehand or are you learning as you go?
3: You know, we are definitely learning as we go. I have to say that over the years, we've done so much science that you do build up a kind of a a bedrock of knowledge. Um, But on top of that, there's always new things. Um, You know, we did Genetics at one stage, that was a real mind bender. And now we, you know, looking at vaccines, that's really challenging. We've done a number of natural history stories where you just have to understand the biology of animals. But what's amazing to me, because I'm a graduate, I'm an English grad, English and history, is that, you know, if you learn how to tell stories, you have pr- pretty quickly realize what are the really key things What are the really dramatic things? What are the interesting things? That's what pops out of all this research. And then that's what we tend to focus on. Then, of course, we need to be able to explain it simply and clearly. So we have to drill down and understand, in this case, vaccine technology. But, um, you know, we're all smart enough to be able to do that. And we always, always have fantastic people who help us out. Um, And, you know, in this case, we had Dr. Tanya Watts from the University of Toronto, who was great at just answering all the questions I had about, uh, about vaccines.
1: So getting to this to this documentary, uh, and I guess this may apply to other documentaries you've done. Do you enter the projects with an open mind or are you looking for an angle to shoot?
3: Well we always start with an open mind because if you don't, you just close off pathways that could be fantastic. Um, so we, we started researching this. And one of the first things that came up and that started to then direct our thinking was everyone was telling us the only way you're going to get a vaccine quickly is if scientists collaborate in a way that they've never collaborated before. And, um, you know, they need to stop protecting their data or, you know, stop kind of controlling uh, the information they have because it'll lead to financial gain. They just got to let everybody know what they've discovered because lives depend on it. And that directed us towards wanting to focus on more than one team. We wanted to focus on teams around the world because we knew there would be interaction between them and that they would be collaborating. So in that case, our research made us realize collaboration was critical. Collaboration then led us to think about how we would, how we would choose teams and where those teams would be and how many we would have.
1: So, in sort of the bio of, of the documentary, it says that there were over 250 teams that had their hat in the race. How did you land on the four that you chose to have in, in your documentary? I know that there's a Canadian tie with three of them. Was that part of the process? And uh you know was it blind luck that you followed the <laughs> winner of this race?
3: <laughs> yeah, okay, well, two questions there. first of all, I think that uh, we we definitely wanted uh, a geographical spread. We wanted teams from around the world for the reason I mentioned before. We were also looking for different technologies, there were RNA vaccines there were uh, viral vector vaccines, there were subunit particle vaccines, there were DNA vaccines. So we, we wanted to make sure that, that we had different ones. And of course, there was pan-coronavirus vaccine. Um, so that was one thing. Then the other thing was we definitely wanted to have a Canadian team. It, it, the, the connection with Dr. Jonathan Heaney in uh, Cambridge, the fact that he was Canadian was really purely by luck. Um, we were interested in him because he was doing a pan-coronavirus vaccine. He was going to try to protect us against more than one coronavirus at the same time. And that was pretty unique. Um, In China, the fact that there was a Canadian connection was really, I think, what allowed us to be able to follow that team at all. Mm -hmm. And so we were interested in the Chinese teams. And then we realized, oh, one's got a Canadian connection. Maybe that'll make our discussions with them more possible. Maybe they'll, they'll have a better feel for us. And then, of course, BioNTech, yeah, I think we were pretty excited when they when they crossed the line first, uh, both from a storytelling perspective um, and also because, wow, we had a vaccine. I mean, that was was super exciting. We had looked into their background. We knew that they would be a real contender because they had RNA technology. They've been working on it for 20 years and then eventually they hooked up with Pfizer. So they had financing. So in a way we were more of the excitement for us was that they agreed to give us access. Um, that, that we thought, okay, well, we're in with a chance of of somebody who's going to be maybe a leader, maybe a winner, maybe in the top group. But yeah, when they won, we were pretty excited.
1: Was there an obstacle in getting, um, getting approval? Or were you competing with other documentary companies? Were you the only ones doing this Is a unique perspective? Or were there groups of you uh, doing this?
3: Yeah, it was. There were other people out there doing different types of stories. Sometimes they were... Um, you know, just focusing on one team, sometimes they were like us more broader. Uh, So yeah, there was definitely competition. um, But there was also the issue, which was just the fact that people were spending millions of dollars to try to develop these vaccines. They were working under intense time schedules. Um, They were trying to make a vaccine in 12 to 18 months when when it can take up to 15 years under normal circumstances. Plus, there was the pandemic and the, the whole danger that a film crew might bring an infection into a lab, um, which would have been disastrous for Mm -hmm. people. So some companies were like, nah, that's just too many problems for us. And others were, yeah, we think this is an historic moment. We think it should be documented. We think we're doing something interesting and, and we're willing to let you in. We did a number of things ourselves. We worked with local crews. We weren't flying anybody from anywhere. We slimmed our crew down to just two people um, you know, we followed all the safety protocols. So we tried to do our part as well.
1: Now, I don't know much about the filmmaking process, but I get the impression that this came together extremely quickly. I imagine that a lot of this was a seat of your pants or it might be completely off on timing.
3: Yeah, no, you're right. It was, it was We um, we had been making a climate change documentary for the nature of things. And it was becoming harder and harder to make that film <clears throat> as countries started to close down as things started to happen and um, so but we had this you know relationship with the nature of things we which we've had for almost a decade and um, so when we went to them and said look this is the story Um, here's how we think we could tell it Um, and they said well can you get access and can you film in the middle of the pandemic and we said well here's our plan for doing that and they backed us. So it was very fast, very fast to get a commission and then very fast for us to, I mean, we'd already been researching um, in, in the lead up to talking to the broadcasters, we would already been reaching out to people. So the whole thing came together quickly, but then it was an unfolding event. So it's not like you can pre-plan and uh, like we often do with documentaries, have all your pieces in place. We knew we were going to have to respond to whatever was taking place. Um, both the challenges that companies were facing and the, the successes they were having.
1: From your, your unique perspective in all of this, was it a race against time or was it a race against competing teams? Was it a combination of both? How did you walk away with the whole experience in that science realm?
3: Yeah, you know, I think for storytelling terms, the idea of a race is, is great. Um, And it's dramatic. And certainly that's the structure that we built our documentary around. Mm -hmm. But in reality, you know, I don't really think the teams were kind of racing against each other. They were really racing against the pandemic. They were trying to get a vaccine as quickly as possible because they knew that the longer it took them, the more people would get infected and the more people would die. And I think that all the scientists we talked to, they weren't going, oh, I wonder how BioNTech is doing or I wonder how Moderna is doing. They were like, no, we just we just have to keep moving really fast. We got to here, now we go to here. Now we got to there, we go to the next step. Um, and in the documentary, I mean, Daryl Falzerano, who's um, with Vito Wintervac in Saskatoon said it really well. You know, when I asked him, so are you happy with your first set of results? He said, well, they're not a no. So we keep moving forward. Mm-hmm. That was really all he was thinking about was, this is uh, uh, okay It's a yes, we move to the next step. So I don't think anyone was thinking about a, a big race their race was not against each other. Their race was against the pandemic. And for us, race just made a dramatic structure because we knew that they were up against this time crunch in so many different ways.
1: Did you actually feel, I mean, you know, we're talking about, we're, we're the lay people, we're, you know, second, third-hand information and we've been told that, uh, you know, the vaccine came to market so quickly because of this great collaboration, because the RNA technology was kind of out there. Is that the sense that you got on the inside, that there was this great collaboration, that things weren't pushed through at an yeah, I unsafe did. space?
3: Yeah, no, and, I, and, you know, I asked that question over and over again. I mean, I interviewed each of the teams three, four, five times as we went along just to keep up with what was going on. And every time I would say, you know, what about this whole issue of of how fast you're doing this? So to to me, two things came out of that. One was that the authorities who are looking at vaccines, rather than forcing a linear process, you do step one, when you complete it, you do step two, they started to allow the companies to do processes at the same time. So like BioNTech combined their phase one and phase two, Um, you know, so that would allow them to move more quickly. It didn't mean anything was unsafe. It still went through the same processes. It just had to go through the process. People had to, you know, look at more than one thing at once. And the other thing that was really dramatic to me was to realize how much science had already been done. Ugar Shaheen and Oslan Teresi at BioNTech have been working with RNA, vac- RNA vaccines and RNA technology for 20 years. I had no idea. Uh, Jonathan Heaney had been working on a pan flu vaccine for years. Um, another team that we followed that unfortunately didn't make it into the final film was in Edmonton. And they've been looking at DNA technology for years for cancer. And all of these companies and even the Chinese team had built, had created a an Ebola vaccine um, using the same technology that they then used for the coronavirus. So all these teams were in a unusually unusual way already poised to take on this challenge, and they all went, "Oh, coronavirus. Okay, we can see its sequence. That's how it works. Tick, tick, tick. We can pivot and use this technology we've been working on for twenty years. It'll work against this." So it wasn't as if people were starting from a Standing stop. I think that the people don't realize that a lot of basic science had been already been done thanks to these people. And they were in a really good position to move fast.
1: Do you think this might be the most important piece of your documentary is to really showcase that?
3: Yeah, I think that's part of it. I mean, yes, definitely. I think showcasing the fact that these are really smart scientists, super dedicated not there because they're trying to make a buck. They're there because they really do believe in saving lives, and, I, and you know that sounds naive. But I, I felt in in most of the cases that was, and probably all the cases that that was exactly what they were being driven by. Um, so I, that's I really took away this idea that, um, and I think our documentary shows the the care that they put into it how smart they were about what they did, how long they've been working on this technology, and therefore it it was safe and it was effective. And we saw that with BioNTech. The other big thing that hit me was I thought like everybody else, right? November rolled around, BioNTech announced that they they'd got a a vaccine that was 96% effective. We're done. Um, And other teams will follow soon after and they did. But it it was Uber Shaheen from BioNTech who really kind of knocked me out of that. And he said We need billions of doses, and BioNTech and Pfizer can't do that alone. We need more and more of these vaccines to be created. And I realized then that really the race wasn't over. There was still a long way to go. And in our film, we have an epilogue where we say, you know, we're getting 27 million people vaccinated every day, but around the world, but 4.3 billion people have yet to have a single dose. And the only way to get there, there's a number of ways to get there, but one of the ways to get there is for more teams who are currently still working on vaccines to be successful and to get multiple more vaccines out there.
1: Well, why can't they use the same technology and just have different companies? They don't want to they don't want to um, give away the formulations. Why can't the same companies uh, the like the Pfizer's, the BioNTech yeah. get other companies, hire them on just to produce the one effective vaccine?
3: Yeah, I, I, I completely agree with you. I, I, don't, I haven't dug into that enough to know all of what's going on, but it seems to me that licensing w- would be a really smart thing to do. And I know there's a whole hullabaloo about intellectual property. And would that you know create a precedent that would be negative? I don't know. I mean, I know these things cost millions, sometimes billions of dollars to develop. I understand that companies put a lot of money into them and, and need to recoup their investment. But we're talking about a pandemic, a worldwide pandemic. So it seems to me that there must be a way for this technology to be shared and for other companies around the world or other manufacturing facilities around the world to be able to make it. At the same time, it certainly would help if, you know, uh, Jonathan Heaney got his vaccine out to the the market and and, um, uh, Vito Intervac did the same. And, you know, there are over 300 teams still in development.
1: Well, uh, Jonathan, Heaney, he's doing a different type. Like he, it's, it's completely different, right? He's trying to, uh, one umbrella vaccine. And I understand that that can't be, you know, sort of lumped into, to the, the singular vaccine. Um, you know, just before we go to break, uh, I, I'm wondering if you can, if, if you know, phase one, phase two, phase three, what is involved in each phase?
3: Yeah. Okay. You're really going to test me here. Yeah. Um, just phase, generally. <laughs> phase, phase one is just looking at the safety of the vaccine. Um, you know, is this going to cause, you know, negative uh, reactions in people? Phase two really tries to get a sense of, well, what dose is required? Because you don't want to give a, too much a dose or not, or too little. So phase two, they're trying to figure out what's the most effective dose. And then phase three, they're trying to work out, is this really effective? And that's when they're doing, you know, some people are getting a placebo. Some people are getting the actual vaccine. Then they look at how effective the vaccine has been at protecting those people who got it. Mm-hmm. And that's how we get those numbers, like 96% for um, BioNTech and I, Moderna, I think, was up at that same level and Johnson & Johnson, I think, is at 76 and AstraZeneca is at 76. That phase three trial is the really the critical one for, for working out the effectiveness. So on broad sweeps, that's what they're doing. And before phase one, there's a huge amount of work, a lot of which we filmed, where they're really working with test tubes on, on uh, lab benches, and then they get to the point where they can test it in animals to see whether it protects those animals. Um, and then, only then, when it's gone through those processes, do they go into Phase one human trials?
1: Yeah, and it's just happened so quickly. And I think this is what boggles people's minds, and I think the documentary really elucidates, that's the right word, uh, yeah. the processes and how, even though the time frame was so constrained, that nothing was sacrificed in the process. And I think, you know, we're all, you know, knee-jerking to try and figure out and do the right thing. And I think the documentary does an amazing job of documenting the process so we have a clear understanding of how things were done. We're going to continue along with this conversation, everyone. We're just going to take a quick break here.
2: space that his love can't reach. There's no place where we can't find peace. There's no end to amazing grace. Take
1: Everybody, welcome back. We're talking with Dugald Maudsley and we are he is the the documentarian, the is that your producer, would you say, is that your title? You no, know, I,
3: I wear a lot of hats. Producer. Okay. I wrote I wrote this one executive produced. Yeah.
1: Hands all over this project inside, <laughs> inside the great vaccine race. Yeah. Um, You know, in talking to you and watching this film in preparation for the interview several times, I kept pulling out different things. The bat scene freaked me out. And we'll talk about that in a sec. But um, I want to use you sort of as the common guy who's going into this, um, no predispositions either way. What was the sense of the vaccine, the process, the safety? As you came away from the film, you said you didn't have any pre, uh, you know, predeterminations in your mind. What can you tell us about the, your sense now of the process, the efficacy, and the safety of the vaccines?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that we as a team were blown away by the dedication of these scientists, by the knowledge they already had and by the care they took in, in making these vaccines and that the technology they were working with was, was really great and that we were, I have to say, I felt fortunate that, that these people were on my side and that they were working away to create something that would protect me from this, this, vac- this virus. And frankly, you know, I, I was filled with confidence watching them do what they did Yes, they had to move quickly, but they were moving carefully. They were taking care at every step and they weren't allowed to move on to the next step until the authorities had looked at their data and confirmed that, you know, they had done what they said they'd done, that the vaccine was safe, which was phase one. You know, then they worked at the dose in phase two. So to me, I came away feeling like, one, I'm super lucky that I live in a world where people like this exist Two that the money was there to make this vaccine. Three that it was made so quickly and was safe and so effective. I mean, that was quite extraordinary, and that it was there available for me, um, you know, in a in a lightning amount of time. So I, I think in the end, I went from like, okay, well, you know, this seems like a bit of a, a bit of a push, but to the end, feeling very confident that what came out from all of these com- companies was safe and it was really going to work. And thank goodness they created it.
1: Would you say that this might be one of the most important documentaries you've made? You know, in some ways,
3: it's really hard to tell when you're in the thick of things. And we've made so many docs over the years. You never quite know what kind of ramifications they're ha- they will have. But I certainly feel like it's documented in a way that I haven't ever before, or we haven't ever before as a, as a, as a, as a bunch of storytellers, a historic moment. Mm-hmm. Like you can think back a hundred years to the you know the flu epidemic that that uh, took so many lives back uh, you know, 1918, nineteen nineteen 1920. Um, we haven't really had anything of that scale since then. and yet here we are living through it and and I think in a way, our children living through it, they're the ones who had you know, we affected by schools being closed down and not being able to go on to university or not be able to go on that uh, trip or having difficulties getting a job, all that stuff. So I think in a way, you know, they might look back on this as an historic document to remember this time and what it meant and what we went through. So, yeah, I think it's I think it I think it has it'll have a, a lasting benefit. Um, in a way that maybe some of the other films that we've made in the past haven't.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, So let's highlight the four teams that you did follow. I'm just going to throw out some things that stood out to me when Mm -hmm. uh, I was watching the film. Um, Professor Shaheen and his wife, Dr. I Am I saying that correctly? Terasi. Terasi from BioNTech. Uh, He made a couple of comments to me that were profound saying that the race is not over. Um, and i took away i took away a lot from watching their process the big thing was he said that he had been working or they have been working with this technology for many years in the cancer space mm-hmm. and they were taking a big risk throwing this technology into this vaccine space why is that
3: yeah so i think the risk was really about them risking all of their finances and the you know their 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 company I don't think it was a risk in terms of danger factor. It was just yeah. that they were kind of going, okay, we're, they're a pretty small company. Um, even though they've, they've done some amazing things over the years and they were th- they went all in, right. They just, they stopped all of their work on everything else they were doing. They took all of their employees and they said, we're now going to work 24 hours a day, three shifts, three eight hour shifts called operation Lightspeed. Um, and we're going to try to stop this, this pandemic. So, you know, it's, it, it takes a lot for a company just to say, okay, everything else we're doing, forget it. We're going to do this. And you know, that that's for him. I think that's what he meant when he said it was a big risk financially and, and company wise for them. Oh, okay. But I think they were super confident, right? They, they, they knew what they were doing.
1: Does this bode well? Does the, does the efficacy of the uh, RNA vaccine, do you think it bodes well in the other spaces that they're working on?
3: Absolutely. In fact, awesome. I think that's the next major medical story. And, and, and we're going to be trying to track that ourselves. RNA technology has, will change the world. And it's already, you know, being spun to look at cancer, HIV, you name it, that technology can be used. And the amazing thing about it is that because it's based on RNA, you can change it relatively rapidly. You can say, "Okay, we see that the virus has changed to this it's new its new genetic code is that let's extract that genetic code, let's put it into our vaccine boom now we can we can manufacture that new version, and we're able to deal with this mutated uh, virus. so it has tremendous applications all over the place, and I think that's what we'll all be seeing next
1: fascinating now let's go to China and dr Wu he was he is the CEO of uh consignal biologics, correct? Um, I I found, and again, you pull out, you throw out to me what you found fascinating about this, but I found fascinating that he couldn't continue his trials because he didn't have enough people to administer his vaccine to that, that kind of stood out to me, um, his conversation about that, what stood out to you about his process and the type of vaccine that he was working on?
3: Yeah, so CanSino had a a pretty straightforward technology. Um, And as we point out in the documentary, there are challenges with it because it's based on an adenovirus. That's the delivery system. And that's the common cold thing that causes the common cold. So our bodies bodies have all seen the adenovirus before. So when it enters our body, uh, our immune system already kicks into action to attack it. And so that means that some of the vaccine medication and the vaccine itself doesn't get delivered to the cells because the delivery system gets, gets wiped out. So it wasn't as cutting edge as say the RNA technology that BioNTech and Moderna were using, but they had already made this vaccine before for Ebola, which I thought was pretty amazing. What was also interesting about them was they had the backing of the Chinese military. For good or ill, it was certainly, uh, they were well-financed and they had this large body that was gonna be helping them to to make the vaccine and had helped them with the um, Ebola vaccine. We weren't really able to get very deeply into that. They they had a particular scientist that they worked with and I think that helped them move quickly, but then they hit this point where uh, they really needed to do phase three. You need to be in a place where the infection is actually rampant. Um, And China being the type of authoritarian country it is had managed to tamp down um, the, the spread of the disease, you know, by doing things that you can't do in a democracy, which is lock people in their apartments and whatnot, effective at stopping a virus, but, but uh, you know, not perhaps what we'd like to see um, living where we are. So it was interesting to see the different kind of forces that were at play for him that were very different than the forces that were at play for the other companies that we focused on.
1: And here is, again, where your documentary elucidates some things. You know, I remember hearing China's testing their vaccine on the military. End of story. And, you know, you come away with thinking, what the heck is going on over there, right? And it's yes. it's, it's so beneficial to have this documented in in a truism. You know, it's so I, I think that that, that that really stood out to me because of what I had heard, my sort of understanding of what was going on versus what you documented. So I thought that was... It, that was a, a, a moving marker for me in my understanding. Okay. That's good. Uh, Dr. Allison um, Kelvin, so mm-hmm. she moved away from her. Home. This is more toward the um, emotional side for me of the story and, and how much she sacrificed. Is that kind of the angle you were taking with her?
3: Yeah. And not only with Allison. I mean, we really, we really had hoped and we did to, to a degree get beyond just the, the white lab coats um, it was really important for us to try to understand who these people were and what kind of sacrifices they were making. Alison was perhaps the, the starkest example because, you know, she left her family behind and traveled all the way across the country to Saskatoon. And, um, you know, that was a big commitment on her part, but Jonathan Heaney moved into Cambridge university, moved onto campus into one of the residences because he didn't want to put his family in danger and he wanted to be close to his lab. Um, Ugar Shaheen and Oslam Tracy were working 20 hour days. They had, their company was working 24 seven. Like it, it was everywhere. There were these kind of personal things that were happening from the scientists. And we really wanted to try to, to give you that story as well. And not just the, okay, step one, step two, step three. Um, and also of course the drama of what was happening and how these scientists were responding to it. We right. wanted to understand what, what they were, what they were giving up. And they gave up a lot.
1: Well, that's the human side of it. Now, I know it's really come to light here in the medical space. You know, we we have a real compassion for the nurses. Any of us who have had a personal experience with someone in the hospital knows um, the humane uh, the humanity that these people have working with those in the hospital. And I think that we've you know the scientists are white coat. They're the scientists that are out there. We don't really we're not really in touch with them. And I think that bringing that understanding and opening up that space is an important part because these are people working in a different space. We don't get to see them. Uh, we only judge them. And, uh, yeah. and, and I think that, that, you know, the documentary is just so wonderful in that it touches so many different things. I came away with it, feeling much more confident in what I had done. I really did. And, and I think that, um, you know, when you go to watch this, everybody, I think you're going to come away with that same sense um now i i want to make sure that we that we do talk about what dr heaney is doing because it is different from mm-hmm. um from the other three uh teams that you followed so we we touched on it a bit a pan you know a pan vaccine but can you explain it a little bit more and then talk about that bat scene that's oh, yeah, something from a hitchcock movie oh
3: yeah that, <laughs> you could talk
1: about, yeah really it is
3: yeah, so Dr. Heaney is interesting because, you know, sadly, he believes that we're going to face another challenge like this in the future. And part of the reason is that uh, bats carry coronaviruses. So SARS-1, the, the 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 challenge we had way back in 2003, um, and, and people died here in Canada, um, that was a virus that came from a bat through another animal and into humans. They don't know where SARS-CoV-2 has come from, though they believe it may well be a bat. That's something that took years to work out with with SARS-1. So what Dr. Heaney's decided to do is, sure, he's gonna create a a vaccine which will fight this current coronavirus, the one we all know about, but he's also gone out into the world to search for other coronaviruses that are uh, present in bats that might one day make the jump from a bat to a human. And he's making sure that their genetic code is also part of his vaccine. So that if that does ever happen, we already have a vaccine that would be effective in uh, protecting us against that potential coronavirus. And he went through a lot of very complex things to choose which coronaviruses would be part, which which of their sequences would be part of his, his vaccine. And you know, making sure that he covered a wide range ones that might have the the power to make that kind of leap. And to get those sequences, to get those viruses, he relied on scientists like the one that we focused on, Dr. Superborn, who was the first scientist in Thailand to actually identify the the coronavirus when it it entered uh, Thailand. She gets out in advance of potential disease by looking for viruses that might do exactly what Jonathan says make that leap from animals to humans. So one of the big animals that they look at are bats. And there's this crazy cave uh, to, you know, uh, about an hour and a half out of Bangkok um, in a place called Ratchaburi, two and a half million bats live there. And every night they, you know, they, they get out of the, they get out of this crack in the side of the cave and up they go. So we went to film there when Dr. Superporn went with her team. And they basically capture as many bats as they can. They take samples from them. They then sequence those samples to see whether or not there's a new coronavirus, which we haven't seen before. And all that goes up onto databases that scientists like Jonathan Heaney can, can access. So it's a pretty amazing process of kind of trying to keep ahead of the game and to help us protect against maybe the next virus that come could come. And then Jonathan taking that information, he's trying to turn that into an effective vaccine.
1: Was that you actually in the cave with them?
3: No, you know, oh. because, because of this, you know, because of this pandemic, I didn't go anywhere. I sat here where I'm talking to you in my office in Toronto and I did all the interviews by zoom all over the world with different people. And we had local crews. So we had a, we had a crew from Bangkok, shoot that scene for us.
1: That's a blessing. Um, Well, okay. Now, where's my thinking going wrong here? If we have this RNA vaccination, that really, um, you just take different genetic codes. And as you explained before, it can be, uh, you you know, you think this is the breakthrough technology, and it can be applied in many different spaces. Why can't we, if there is another uh, coronavirus, simply take that genetic code and slip it into the RNA? And then you've got your vaccine right there.
3: Yeah, it, you you absolutely could, and that I think is the wonder of the of RNA technology. I mean, I still re- still think about the flu vaccine, right? We would see what happened in Australia. Um, you know, what was was the vaccine they had effective? And then we'd start to we'd make a guess and say, okay, by the time the flu gets to us here in North America, it'll have mutated this much, and so our vaccine needs to do this. As a result, we have a. a, a a flu vaccine that's sometimes only 50 or 60% effective because mm-hmm. we've had to make a guess. RNA means you can move more quickly and therefore you can have a um, a vaccine that's going to be more effective against the actual virus that you're dealing with. And I think that's what makes that technology amazing. It's still expensive to create. You still have to go through all of these processes that we show in the, in the film. So you still have this, this you know, a year 11 months, whatever it took them, you still have to go through all of that to get to a safe vaccine in the end. But at least now we know that that technology works. This is the first time it's really been effective and used in a big way. So hopefully, yes, if we do see another uh, virus make that leap to humans, then we have a technology that we can swing into action to fight it.
1: Is this the end of the process? Uh, I know that there needs to be uh, more vaccinations um, distributed, but is it the end of the story or is there another documentary that needs to be done to continue oh. with this?
3: Uh, well, I, I think the next documentary, at least at the moment anyway, is, is about RNA technology and, and how it c- can be used. I think in terms of the pandemic, we're still, unfortunately, a long way to go which is we need lots more people to be vaccinated because as you probably know, as, as the virus, you know, is allowed to continue to move between person to person, it continues to mutate. And those mutations are dangerous for us, even us who've been vaccinated um, because the virus has changed. So we get Delta variant, we get other variants. So it's really vital, not only to people who haven't been vaccinated, but to people who have, that we stop this virus. And the only way to really do that effectively is with a vaccine. So that story continues. I don't think we'll tell it. We've, we've told our pandemic story. I think for us, the next story is the, the medical breakthrough of, of RNA technology and, and what that could mean for other diseases.
1: Well, I have to thank you personally. Um, it was a pleasure watching the film. It was enlightening. It was, as I said, it gave me confidence um, in the process and it gave me confidence. Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know how naive I am. I had no ideas that, that BioNTech paired with Pfizer. I thought wow. it was a Pfizer. And so, I, you know, it educated me. It comforted me. It had it helped, it so many levels. Uh, I thought it was a, just an amazing, amazing documentary. Where can we watch it?
3: So you can watch it on CBC Gem at the moment, and it will probably be played on, on the CBC network. But the easiest way to watch it now is CBC Gem, which is free unless you want to avoid the commercials and you can pay a small amount a month. But uh, that that's the easiest place to watch it now.
1: Thank you so much for joining. I know you're an incredibly busy person, so I really, really uh, appreciate the time you've taken uh, to come and talk with us. It's been a pleasure speaking with you.
3: Well, thank you, Kathy. I really appreciate your interest and I'm glad that the film had an impact on you and I, I hope it has on others as well.
1: I'm sure it will. Everybody will talk to you next week on The Health Hub.